Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're looking at America's withdrawal from Afghanistan and its likely impact on the future of the country and the wider world. My guest is Tom Kugenhat, MP, who's chair of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee here in Britain. He's also a man with personal experience of Afghanistan. He served there in the British Army and as an advisor to the Afghan government. More recently, Tom Kugenhat's been in the news because China's imposed sanctions on him and a number of other MPs and British organisations because of their vocal opposition to China's record on human rights. So he's in a good position to understand both the local and the global implications for the West. Will Afghanistan now fall to the Taliban? And how will China and Russia interpret American withdrawal? Twenty years ago, America went to war in Afghanistan in the company of its NATO allies. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations. Within weeks, the Taliban had been driven out of power. But despite thousands of lives lost and billions spent on military operations and aid, the US and its NATO allies have never truly stabilised Afghanistan or defeated the Taliban. During the Trump administration, the US government began direct talks with the Taliban and claimed to have secured important commitments. Here's Trump's Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Furthering the cause of peace will require serious work and sacrifice by all sides. The United States, the coalition, the Taliban, the Afghan government, other Afghan leaders and the Afghan people themselves to maintain the momentum needed to reach a comprehensive, inclusive, and durable peace. But the lasting peace that Pompeo was speaking of has not been achieved. Nonetheless, President Biden's announced that the last remaining U.S. troops will pull out later this year on the symbolic date of 9-11-2021. That's 20 years after the al-Qaeda attacks on New York and Washington. I'm the first president in 40 years who knows what it means to have a child serving in a war zone. And throughout this process, my North Star has been remembering what it was like when my late son Bo was deployed to Iraq. In announcing America's decision to pull out, Biden made it clear that his decision was rooted in his own personal experience as the father of an American soldier. We already have service members doing their duty in Afghanistan today whose parents served in the same war. We have service members who are not yet born when our nation was attacked in 9-11. War in Afghanistan was never meant to be a multi-generational undertaking. We were attacked. We went to war with clear goals. We achieved those objectives. Bin Laden is dead and al-Qaeda is degraded in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And it's time to end the forever war. 
American withdrawal will also mean the withdrawal of the country's NATO allies, including Britain, which also has troops in Afghanistan. But not all American allies or Afghan veterans are comfortable with President Biden's decision. Tom Tugendhat's one of those who has doubts. When we met in Westminster this week, I started by asking him about his own personal experiences in Afghanistan. Well, I was there for four years, and the first year I was helping set up the Office of the National Security Council in Kabul. And then I went down to Helmand as the advisor to the governor of Helmand, helping to set up the first non-warlord administration in Helmand in Lashkagar for 30 or so years. And then I stayed on and went back to my military unit and served the following two years on operations, mostly in Helmand, but around the country. So this must be quite a poignant moment for you now. That was about a decade ago that you left, but now the West is essentially leaving Afghanistan to its own devices. Yeah, I came off my last patrol on the 27th of July 2009. It was a very formative part of my life, of course. And yes, it is very emotional, of course, but it's it's also, you know, a moment that passed a little while ago because actually the reality is the West stopped military operations in Afghanistan about two or three years ago. And what we've got, there currently is a training team. So it's not as though we're pulling out of combat operations. We did that a while ago. Nonetheless, I think you're uneasy about what President Biden has announced, to put it mildly. I am, but that's not because of cessation of combat operations. It's because what the United States fundamentally offers with its two or 3,000 troops, way, way down on the 100 or so thousand it had at the peak, is it's offering a training and stabilisation for the Afghan government. And what we're seeing, therefore, as it leaves, is a bit like abandoning Germany in 1947. And what do you fear for Afghanistan now? Or fear is maybe too strong, but what do you think is going to happen now? Well, I think the chances are that Taliban forces, and I use the term advisedly because Taliban covers a multitude of sins. It means anybody who's against the government, really and not necessarily terribly united in itself. But anti-government forces, perhaps a better way of putting it, will, I suspect, undermine the position of the government around the country. They're already undermining the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police, of whom there's about 180,000 of the army, about 120,000 or so of the police. They're undermining them in the provinces, attacking schools, destroying village centres and so on, and making sure that justice is done in their name rather than in the name of the government. So we're already seeing a weakening of the government position. And the old joke that the president of Afghanistan is the mayor of Kabul looks likely to come to pass. By which you mean that the Taliban will control the rest of the country? Effectively, yes. Do you think they might even take Kabul in due course? It's entirely possible. You know, one can only hope not. But without the support of the US military in moral terms, as well as in material and and air and aviation, it's hard to see this government, you know, hanging on. But then, you know, Afghan governments have a way of making deals in different ways. I mean, I suppose some people might respond, well, look, if the Afghan government is incapable after 20 years of preventing the Taliban from essentially taking over large parts of the country, maybe that is the natural state of Afghanistan. And we should just, however much we dislike it, accept that that's what it's going to be like. Sure, that's a perfectly valid position, but then you need to accept the things that go with it, which is the end of girls' education, the end of women's rights in the constitution, the likely establishment of different forms of governance than you would traditionally accept, probably a major drug economy returning. You're accepting other things that go with that as well. And you're also accepting a very visible sign of 
Western military failure. You know, NATO has been in Afghanistan with its largest military commitment for the best part of 20 years. It hasn't stabilised the country. It hasn't established governance. It hasn't delivered. And, and, and a lot of people will be watching that. You know, if you're in Beijing or Moscow or Islamabad, uh, or indeed in Tehran, you'll be seeing that the key to defeating the West is patience. Why do you think after 20 years, though, it's proved so hard to stabilise the country? I mean, there are several reasons. I mean, we, you know, we started badly, we went wrong a little in the middle, and the less said about the end, the better, as the old joke goes. But I mean, we started badly because we went in very hard militarily, quite rightly, to remove the Taliban and to make sure that the military element was victorious. But then we didn't follow up very quickly with the aid that was needed to demonstrate commitment and stabilisation. And then we distracted ourselves, as you know, with Iraq, where many forces went uh, west instead of investing hard in the area where we already were. And then various different agreements in the recent years have undermined the position of the government. I mean, the talks in Qatar have been extraordinary. They've been US talks without precondition. Those are where the US essentially has been since... I guess the middle of the Trump administration negotiating directly with the Taliban, but cutting out the Afghan government. Exactly. And and in cutting out the Afghan government, cutting out the legitimacy of the president of Afghanistan. I mean, you can question his election if you like, but he is the recognised president of Afghanistan. And if you're to have legitimacy, it's in supporting a lawful government. And so undermining Ashraf Ghani in talks in Qatar seems to be a, an odd thing to do. Why did the Taliban prove so hard to defeat them? Well, there are many reasons as ever. One of them is to do with the nature of tribal society in Afghanistan. Second is the nature of outside support and the way that different countries in the region have fought proxy wars in Afghanistan, therefore supported different groups. And a third is the failures of the Afghan government itself. You know, this is another area of failure where our aid very often supported corrupt power networks rather than delivering appropriately for people. And this was a challenge for all of us. Now, Biden, in his statement, said, look, we've achieved our basic goals, and we achieved them a long time ago. Our goals were counterterrorism. He's known privately to have been dismissive of the idea that you could enforce women's rights sustainably. What do you think of that? That, as he put it, this was the conflict of 20 years ago. It stemmed from 9-11. We now need to focus on, on other things. And do you agree with him that we've basically achieved the counterterror? Objectives. Well, the presence of ISIS in Afghanistan suggests that that may be a temporary reprieve rather than a permanent situation. And the different ways in which Al-Qaeda seems to be organising today suggests that it's more of an idea than a force and therefore how you can claim victory over an idea is hard to say. I do sympathise that this has been going on for 20 years. The problem is that the level of commitment he'd got it down to was actually very low. You know, 2,000 US troops, nobody killed or injured for over a year. Sustaining this capability looked perfectly doable. So as you said, in your view, they should have treated it like settling down in Germany after the Second World War, in Korea after the Korean Wars, uh, not as something that you had to bring to an end. Exactly. It's more of a, a very, very low-level garrison operation where you're maintaining the capabilities of partner forces. But the reality is once you make the decision, as the United States now has, you might as well leave as fast as you can because the reality is it's over. How do you feel about the way the US has or hasn't consulted its NATO allies? Because as you say, this was a huge NATO operation. Well, there's 750 British troops there, and I don't know when the government was informed, but it's not simple to move those troops, and they are currently reliant on US 
support for logistics, for medical support, and in some cases also for force protection. But, you know, there are many countries that are involved in the operation in Afghanistan, countries like Georgia, who will be questioning what Western commitment means to their defence as well. Yeah, I mean, let's come to those wider implications. Do you think it's as simple as, you know, Beijing and Moscow look at this and say, America... His credibility is on the line here or is weakened and, and are therefore emboldened? Or is that kind of a Cold War way of thinking about it? It's more complicated than that? I mean, I wouldn't say it's quite as black and white in that. I, I would suggest that actually military capability is not just about the ability to fight, but the willingness to do so. And if you're going to withdraw from areas where actually the commitment isn't that high and the cost isn't that great, enemies are going to wonder whether you have the commitment in areas where the price could be higher. And this is where you might look at somewhere like Ukraine or Georgia, where the occupation of both countries are already significant. So would you really get involved? Would you really defend Tbilisi or Kiev? Yes, and uh, I mean, that's been an open question for a while. I mean, given that Russia is now building up its forces on the border with Ukraine, how concerned are you that we may be facing a crisis quite soon? I'm very concerned. I mean, I suspect that this is Russia doing what it does most frequently, which is to make a lot of noise in order to distract from internal failures as the Putin regime continues to rob its own people. But it's possible that something could trigger an escalation. And of course, in the other side of the world, you know, we know that there's an escalation around Taiwan as well. Yes, and neither Taiwan nor Ukraine have explicit security guarantees from the United States or let alone NATO. Is that a weakness? Well, it's certainly something that others will notice. I mean, Afghanistan had a US troop presence, and look at that. So if even having a US troop presence doesn't guarantee much, what does this mean? So that's, that's where this question rises. I mean, clearly, the defence of Ukraine or the defence of Taiwan has different implications than the defence of Afghanistan. So these things are not binary exchanges. But it is certainly true that people will look at America's willingness to deploy force and ask what exactly it means in a Biden era. You mentioned Taiwan, and of course, you've been directly targeted by the Chinese because you've taken a very tough line on China. You've now been subjected to sanctions, I believe. That's right. Does that actually affect you in any particular way? No, no, it doesn't affect me at all. I don't think, in a funny way, actually, I don't think it's really supposed to. It's mostly, I think, just supposed to signal that China can do what we do. But it's quite noticeable that the West has sanctioned Chinese officials for actual brutality, actual murders, actual detentions. And uh, China has sanctioned individuals for speaking out about the brutality towards Chinese citizens and calling out the human rights violations of Chinese citizens. Among the things you've highlighted have been Hong Kong, Xinjiang. As you say, the direct security concern at the moment is Taiwan. Biggest, I think, incursion on record by the Chinese Air Force last week into Taiwanese airspace. Again, we're guessing, but what do you think is going on? I mean, actually launching an invasion of Taiwan would be a huge operation, wouldn't it? It would be enormous, and it's much more likely that China would look to take some of the smaller islands in the area, destabilise the security guarantees, effectively try to convince the Taiwanese that their security partnership with the United States was no longer something worth relying on. And so this is what I mean by, although it's not a binary equation, the withdrawal from Afghanistan causes people to doubt, and in military or geopolitical terms, doubt is dangerous. You want confidence because you don't want doubts that lead to conflict. You want certainty that leads to standoff. 
Mm. And how do you see the Biden administration then, particularly on this issue? Because, you know, it was just a month ago that the president was standing at the Munich Security Council, or rather Zooming the Munich Security Council, and saying America is back. And then a month later, you have this slightly equivocal message on Afghanistan, and yet he has used much more confrontational language with Russia and China than President Trump was prepared to, and America does seem keen on engaging its allies. It's a slightly ambiguous picture, isn't it? Well, the words we've heard from Tony Blinken over Kiev, for example, over Ukraine recently have been extremely clear, defending Ukrainian sovereignty and calling out Russia's occupation of Crimea and the Donbass. You know, so on one level, the words have been very clear, but people look beyond the words and they do look at actions. And the United States has reinvested very clearly into NATO and has made very clear statements on that. But it's certainly true that countries like Russia have heard many words spoken in the past. And when they invaded Ukraine, there were many words said and nothing happened. When they invaded Georgia, there were many words said and nothing happened. In fact, when they exploded the base in Prague or indeed attempted to murder the Skripals in Salisbury, many words were said. Well, there were sanctions. Minor. I mean, and, until you actually end up with a list of Putin's assets held abroad on the front page of the Financial Times, frankly, the sanctions are totemic. So what should we be doing? We should be going after the leader himself. I mean, not going after in a kinetic sense, no, but we should be exposing what has happened. And what Vladimir Putin has done over the last 20 years is rob the Russian people blind and literally stolen hundreds of billions of dollars off the Russian people and hidden it in jurisdictions around the world, and we should be exposing that. And the same with the Chinese? Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly true that we know that many of the Red Princes today, those in the Politburo and those in the leadership in Beijing, the things that they aspire to are not seafront properties in Shanghai, but actually seafront properties in Manhattan. And it's really quite noticeable that their children are in foreign universities and many of them are seeking foreign passports. So we talked about the Americans. What do you think of the current stance of the British government? Because we just had this big strategic defence review. Talk of uh, global Britain, Indo-Pacific tilt. Some tough language on Hong Kong, but equally remnants of this idea that China is an indispensable economic partner, particularly after Brexit. Do you think Britain has resolved this ambiguity? No, it hasn't. And it's a difficult one for the UK to resolve because clearly our closest trading partner, the European Union, is one which we're still in negotiation with as to what the resolution will be of that trading relationship. The United States is tricky to do trade deals with because it's a very large continental power with different interests. India, which is another hopeful nation, keeps asking for many, many visas, which raises a challenge for a country that has different views on free movement. And so China does come back as a suitable type partner. But the reality is that the relationship with China is very difficult. And, you know, we've spoken about having increased defence budget, and that's certainly true. We've got about £6 billion extra a year for four years. But basing ships in the South China Seas will swallow that up and more. So we shouldn't do it? Well, so we need to decide what it is we're going to do, because the nature of military power is you can do one of two things. You can either advertise strength or you can advertise weakness. If all you're going to do is sail through and come home and demonstrate you cannot endure. You're doing what we're doing in Afghanistan, which is to demonstrate lack of commitment and weakness. If what you're going to do is to base permanently in Okinawa or somewhere like that, then you're demonstrating a global capability. And I think you need to decide what it is you're willing to do. And once you've decided what it is you're willing to do, resource it so that you can actually do it. I guess if I were a Russian or a Chinese critic of what you were saying, 
leaving aside the moral issues, I think they would say, look, here is Britain failing to come to terms with the fact the world has changed. You know, you you are no longer a great power. You may speak boldly about human rights violations in Russia, China, but you don't have the backup. And actually, neither does the United States, increasingly. So come to terms with this new world, even if you don't like it. Well, you see, I don't buy that. I mean, I certainly accept the position that the UK is certainly not the naval hegemon that it was, you know, 100 years ago. And that's perfectly obvious. But I don't buy the fact that the UK has no influence or no power. The reality is people do come to the UK for things that are valued. And it's only by seeing what other people choose to come to us for that you can see where our strengths are. And they come to us for different forms of legal instruments, different forms of financial instruments, and for information. The Financial Times and the BBC are huge soft power of UK influence. Now, I don't mean by that that in any sense you're part of a propaganda machine, but you stand for something, and that matters. And so when you look at where the UK's influence is, the truth is we have huge influence in building networks, in creating alliances, and in shaping rules. Now, we can continue to do that, or, or we can pretend that those don't matter, and we can try instead to go back to the policies of the 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I would suggest that focusing on the future, the rules of new cryptocurrencies, for example, the rules of new trade partnerships, the rules of new alliances, is exactly where we should be in building up partnerships to reinforce them. China's influence is, yes, it's the second or soon-to-be first economy in the world. But if you add up the size of the so-called free economies, free market to a degree economies, you get well over 60-70%. And so creating trade blocks that unite them is where we should be going. Just a last question, and it's obviously a huge question, but I'll try it on, on you anyway. I guess the concern would be that, going back to what we were saying about Taiwan, Ukraine, is in the end, are you prepared to fight over those places? Can you even sell that to Western public who may say, well, look, we don't like it, but these are rising powers, particularly China, maybe Russia a bit less. And it's not realistic to oppose them expanding their influence unless you're prepared to go to war with them. Well, first of all, I think that if the UK and, by the way, partners act properly, then that isn't the question. And the real question is how do you build up alliances that enable the growth of China within a rules-based system? We shouldn't be looking to constrain China. We should be perhaps looking to channel China away from gross human rights violations, but not in terms of constraining its growth. It should grow and it should have a place in the world. Chinese values have written many of the most important values that we have today. The UN Declaration on Human Rights was written by a Chinese diplomat, Mr. Chang, way back in the 40s. You know, these are important Chinese values that we are standing up for. But how we do that is important and demonstrating not just the ability to cooperate, but the willingness to do so beyond diplomatic means is important. And that's where it's not insignificant to look at operations around the world and indeed withdrawal from countries around the world and see how others will read it. That was Tom Tugendhat MP, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.